these scientific myths, I think, emerge through these kind of quite lazy social observations. We see that inequality exists or a disparity exists in society. How can we explain it? And the automatic response of the scientists, sadly, too often is a biological one. There must be a biology at play here. And that is the error that you see playing out in race science from its very inception. Welcome to Secret Leaders. Our guest today, Angela Saini, is an award-winning science journalist, author and broadcaster, and rather unusually for the Secret Leaders podcast, the first ever guest we've had that is not an entrepreneur of a wildly successful company with lots of painful lessons and battle scars to share with our audience. Now, this might seem like an unusual guest choice, but I've been following her excellent work since I started delving into the world of science for my journey building heights, and with the world focusing quite rightly on issues of race and more specifically Black Lives Matter it felt a really relevant time to bring on an expert speaker on the topic of racism so we, as leaders, can think about it a bit more deeply. She presents radio and television programmes for the BBC and her writing has appeared across the world, including The New Scientist, Prospect, The Sunday Times, Wired and National Geographic. She rose to prominence with her brilliant book, Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong, which has wild, been wildly acclaimed and won the Physics World Book of the Year. And she followed that up last year with a superb superior, The Return of Race Science, which, as you might imagine, is why I've asked her to join us for this week's episode. And just to be clear, her books come after a long stint in journalism, picking up an outrageous number of awards for some of the amazing stories that she's put together over the years. So all in all, a very accomplished lady to learn with today. So without further ado, Angela, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so honoured to be on your show. <laughs> well, as you know, I, uh, I've probably uh, like, liked and retweeted many of your tweets over the last few years when you have been on Twitter, because I know you periodically go off it. And I once even hunted you down on LinkedIn just to check what was going on. <laughs> but uh, I'm very, I'm very delighted to be in conversation with you today. So we usually start off and we will continue that time on a tradition, because I know that it might get heavy today whilst we're learning. So we're going to lighten it to start off with with a quick fire round. So... Dogs or cats? Oh, dogs. <laughs> Science or journalism? Journalism. Books or podcasts? Books. Oxford or Kings? Oxford, because I spent more time there. Yale or Princeton? Oh, Yale. Hardest question yet, but inferior or superior? Oh, superior. Oh, really? <laughs> it's tough, yeah. I thought you were going to say inferior just because everyone always chooses their baby. Well, yeah, they're all my babies, really. But um, I think with Superior in particular, it was for me the most personal book I've written. And it really kind of, um, it got down on paper a lot of the things I'd been feeling for many decades. It was the reason I got into journalism in the first place, because I was an anti-racism campaigner when I was at university. I'd suffered quite a bit of racism when I was growing up. And it was a cathartic experience getting it all in that book um, and so much so that when I finished I actually didn't care what anyone thought of it you can ask him you can ask my husband I was just so glad to have finally put all my thoughts on this and all the science on this down on paper and I was really so satisfied with it I honestly didn't care <laughs> good good for you so this one's personal okay so before we move on to it the final question um you've been stranded on a desert island and you can take three things what are you choosing uh, so not people i can't take my husband and my son with me yeah, you can if you to. want but you know okay. you might you might want some solace no i would want them i think you know that this weird lockdown period <laughs> husband son and my laptop. That's a terrible thing to choose when you should be relaxing. But I've noticed over this lockdown period, I was a little bit nervous at the beginning that it would cause rifts in my marriage or that I would get very tense with my son or something would go wrong. Actually, it's brought us so much closer together. And I really, in a weird way, and I know it hasn't been easy for everyone, but for me, it's been quite wonderful. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting. You know, we had um, on the show a few weeks ago, Ali Pastor and Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. Um, you know, we were discussing how it's just important to share the good and the bad. You know, you shouldn't be ashamed if, if 
uh, lockdown's been treating you well and you've got together closer equally you shouldn't be ashamed to say that's been absolutely nothing like my experience it's been terrible and you know as I said you know my background being uh, a nice stack of library books here um, that's because I'm re recording and interviewing this from my office slash bedroom with my bed behind me so I thought <laughs> you know not the best background so yeah we're all having a different experience but it is nice to hear when people are experiencing a positive one as well to be honest. Angela, context is everything. So I'd like to start from the top and just find out what, what made you want to become a science journalist? Well, I studied engineering at university. And when I was at university, I had every intention of becoming an engineer. I specialised in chemical engineering, which is what my dad had done many years earlier. And um, my plan was to go into the energy industry, which is what a lot of chemical engineers do, and work in maybe renewables or alternative energy. But those plans got waylaid a little bit because I got involved in student politics. Um, I started writing as a result of that for the student paper. Just to give you some context, so when I went to university it was not very long. It was about a decade after Stephen Lawrence, the Stephen Lawrence murder. And Stephen Lawrence was killed not very far from where I lived. So I grew up in a pretty racist bit of southeast London. My school was in the same town as the BNP bookshop. So we used to sometimes have fascist marches going up and down the town on those days, you couldn't go out, there weren't many ethnic minorities. So you really stood out if you were, those experiences had really been formative ones for me. So when I got to university, I was finally among people of all different backgrounds. And also there were campaigns being had against these kind of injustices, which I'd never seen before. And you know, I can't even explain what life was like growing up in that kind of southeast London town where nobody talks about these things and the only racism you, you feel or the only time you ever hear about race is when someone's being racist towards you. So that um, outlet for me became a really important one. And I was told while I was doing an internship at the London Underground, I was told by a careers advisor there, why don't you give journalism a go? And the great thing about an engineering degree is it's really bankable. You can come back to it. And people at that time, at least, I don't know if it's still the case now, but they throw jobs at you because you're numerate. So the city wants you and there's a lot of scope when it comes to engineering. And you sound like a problem solver when you say I do engineering. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which you're not, you're not necessarily a problem solver, but you do at least get trained in those basic skills. So I thought, why not? Why don't I give this a go? And it, and it worked out. And I think it actually helped me to have an engineering degree because when I went for jobs, I was different from some of the other graduates. So I was actually just a general journalist for a long time. I started out on the ITN news trainee scheme, which had just been restarted. So I was the first one of that cohort that year. And that set me up really that was my big break and I'm always grateful to them forever <laughs> for that so I was just doing general politics news crime you know the kind of thing everyday journalists do I missed science though um so around 10 years ago a bit more than 10 years ago now I left to focus on science journalism as a freelancer and I've written three books since then and I love it I think what I bring to science reporting is perhaps that hard journalism background that I had before. So I don't think of myself as a science communicator as such. I think of myself as a journalist who covers science. Okay, yeah, an interesting distinction. And I, but I guess, you know, there's two, well, in theory, we like to believe, certainly, you know, technically the definition of science is answering a question. Um, and I suppose, I don't know the definition of journalism, but I'd imagine it's reporting the truth. So they seem to be quite well aligned. It is. Yeah. In that sense. Yes. In that sense. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is exactly my thing, right? As in, it's easy to say, but you know, not always the case. Well, for me, journalism is about getting behind the facts to understand the motivations of people, why they do what they do, the funding, the philosophies, the ideologies, the politics. And that's what I try to bring to my science reporting is not just, I think some people imagine that science reporting is just decoding science for the public for me it's more than that it's about asking why are people asking these questions what are what is the context what is going on beneath the surface and science we have to understand since this is a business podcast is a business and there massive are massive business yeah it is a massive and business. you know i must say like an extremely 
fucked up in a moral business in many spaces. You know, obviously I'm referring to the pharmaceutical industry predominantly when I say that, but shocking, really. Yeah, but in all aspects, really. I mean, many scientists, I mean, there's egos at play, of course, because the big currency for science is not just money, it's also uh, prestige. You know, a lot of people become scientists in order to win Nobel Prizes and be famous. And that kind of power element definitely plays out. You can see it play out in scientific hierarchies and the way that why certain things get published where they get published so there's a there's a business and power element there there's the politics of it but also in funding you're right i mean funding kind of underlies a lot of why certain things get researched and other things don't and behind the funding then there's politics a murky a murky world in some respects which is why we need good journalists like you to break it down but i guess if I was given my chance, I would probably sit here and go on every tangent we possibly could and learn deeply. But I need to keep us relatively focused. So uh, I'm going to obviously address the issue of the day, which is, you know, what what made you want to write about race and science? Well, it was coming back really to um, my experiences um, early on in my life. I'd always wanted to write about it, but there didn't seem to be that much of an appetite. I think perhaps in the 2000s, there was this belief, even after Obama got elected, I think there was this popular belief that we were turning a corner, things were getting better, that even though there was racism, obviously, still in society, that we were on a kind of forward trajectory. And I think all that changed with the election of Trump, with Brexit, with the rise of the far right and populism, as we've seen in recent years. So it was only at that point, I felt, really able to sell it to a publisher as an idea because I just don't think there was an appetite for it before that and actually we can see that appetite playing out even now after Superior came out there was less interest than there is right now that the George Floyd murder has happened Um, so I think sometimes people for whom a particular set of injustices is not totally relevant to them Sometimes an event happens that makes it relevant to them. And I think that's what the George Floyd murder has done for a lot of white Britons and white Americans. And do you get the demographics of, you know, who's reading your books? You know, is it is it a mixed bag or is it, you know, are you preaching to the converted or do you feel like you're having a good stab at educating, you know, privileged white males like me? It's been quite broad. I've had a lot of female readers, and I think that's because um, they were already fans of Inferior, so that's why they picked up Superior, which has been great. I've actually had a mixed bag. So I have had people who are already aligned with that kind of anti-racist politics, but I've also had quite a lot of racists read the book, I have to say. It was very popular among um, kind of white supremacists online who dissected it ad nauseum in their blogs and uh, on video. There was one particularly racist video where someone dressed up like an Indian person to imitate me and put it on YouTube. And there was um, there were a number of complaints and it was taken down. He just posted it elsewhere. So they have, I have tried to reach out, I think, to that demographic. And I wrote it in a way that would hopefully convince them. To what extent I convinced them, I don't know. Because after all, when we're arguing with racists, we're not. These aren't just intellectual arguments we're having. These are about belief. White supremacy is not just a kind of scientific belief, uh, as it is for some scientific racists out there. It's like a religion. You know, it's a it's a fundamental faith in the idea that some groups of people are naturally better than other groups of people. Absolutely, and cognitive dissonance is such a powerful impact. It's very difficult for people to change their belief system if they've told themselves that story. Yeah, absolutely. And you'll know this, I mean, from from your work, that um, changing people's minds is not easy. It's easier if they're on the fence. And I think there are people on the fence whose minds I have changed. But as for those hardened racists, I wish I could. And maybe it will happen eventually that their minds will be changed. But it's almost like a cult. I guess before we, you know, just a bit, bit more context, obviously very proud of our, our stats with secret leaders from a gender balance point of view reflected in our guest list. But we have, uh, you know, a, a virtually 50-50 uh, male-female split of audience. And so I guess it would be remiss of me before we get into race science, uh, if you could talk to us about the science and its long history of misrepresenting women's role in it, if you don't mind. Well, yeah, I mean, this is where... 
um, my book, Inferior, started out. And I wrote that book. Um, I had just come off maternity leave. So I was experiencing firsthand. And I have to say, I had a very egalitarian upbringing. My parents split everything down the middle. I was very lucky that I wasn't raised at least within my family, with many gender stereotypes, wider society is a different matter. And I think that's one of the reasons I went on to study engineering is that I didn't think of it as a girl's or a boy's course or job. I I just thought anybody could do it. And if my dad could do it, then I could do it. But when you have a child, I think, and you're a working mum, society does not make it easy for you very often. It's very difficult sometimes to go back to work in the same way. Childcare is expensive and people treat you differently. And one of the ways in which I was treated differently, I think, is that when I came off maternity leave, an editor asked me to write a story on the menopause. Now, bear in mind, I didn't used to write anything on human biology. I only really wrote about engineering the physical sciences. I didn't have experience of it. And I think they asked me that, I suspect, because I'm a woman and motherhood in some ways kind of catapults that towards the front of people's minds that she's a woman she'll do women's stories and writing that story on the menopause just helped me understand just how biased science can be you know there are so many ways in which researchers historically have been have loaded their research in ways that feed social stereotypes and got things wrong as a result Um, And menopause was one example of that, because here is a condition, I say condition, it's a normal phase of life, normal phase of life that um, women go through, but you don't see it in most other species. In fact, you don't see it in any other primate species. And at that time, there was this belief um, on the part of some male scientists in what... um, is known as the patriarch hypothesis. So this is an evolutionary explanation for why women experience menopause. And it goes um, that older women aren't fertile because throughout evolutionary history, no man of any age was interested in having sex with them. So because they weren't having sex, they lost the ability to be fertile if they had it in the first place. And this ran completely counter to the leading hypothesis at the time, the grandmother hypothesis, which said that uh, women lived so long into their infertile years, which is a more accurate way of thinking about it, because all animals lose their fertility. What they usually do is die around the same age. We live very long into our infertile years. And the reason for that goes to the grandmother hypothesis is that Grandmothers are so crucial to the survival of their children and grandchildren. And we have such great evidence for this. We have data that backs up the statistical um, likelihood that the presence of a grandmother will raise the survival odds of her children and grandchildren. So we have a mechanism there, which is something you need if you're going to make uh, theories like this. And what surprised me is that the patriarch hypothesis was almost exclusively, not wholly, but almost exclusively put forward by men, whereas the leading scholar at that time for the grandmother hypothesis was a woman. Now, if science were fair, if it really were just about the truth, then it shouldn't matter what your gender is, what your background is. But clearly, it did matter here. It was affecting how people thought. And um, if you look at the history of the science of women, what science has told us about women's minds and women's bodies, you see this problem right the way through it. And historically, because science has been male-dominated, women weren't given access to the scientific academies or to universities to a large part until the middle of the 20th century. Then it was those kind of male stereotypes that were playing out in the science this belief even in the 19th century that women were less evolved than men, that we were intellectually inferior, which of course, both of which we know is not true, but this is how bias plays out in science. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. 
Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Yeah, I have to say that as someone who read the book, obviously, you know, you, you start you talk a lot about eugenics and, uh, you know, the history of, of how we've written about it and indeed perpetuated various myths. And as a, as a, as a Jew myself, uh, you know, I always had these conversations with my mum when she was growing up. She was, when I was growing up, she used to tell me how when she was younger, she would have go home Jew, go back to Israel, all this stuff like graffitied on their house, graffitied and uh, written on her school locker, et cetera, et cetera. And it is hard to relate because, you know, by the time I grew up, I've only ever experienced once an anti-Semitic incident. And um, it's not something, obviously, you know, I'm white, so it's a lot harder to distinguish in the first place. It's not something, you know, so consciously having to consider. And then, you know, reading about eugenics, uh, it does play at home. Uh, so, sorry, it does does sort of ring a bell of familiarity uh, when reading it and understanding it. Um, and... I think the whole the whole piece of work was really eye opening in many ways, and um, I know it would do you a massive disservice to try and summarise a book that people should absolutely go and pay for. However, if you don't mind giving us some insights from your experience uh, researching that book, that'd be really helpful for listeners everywhere. Well, I think when I sat down to write in Superior, I was really working through not just the science, but also like in in your case, in your family's case, a lifetime of experiences that that I'd had, a lifetime of thinking about this in various ways and so much literature I'd read on this subject uh, for many, many years. And when you live something and you have to write about it in a kind of objective way, which you have to do if you're a science writer, it is tricky. So the approach that I took was not just to look at the science because actually I race is not a scientific quantity we might think of it as a biological quantity but the race categories we use are social categories not genetic categories they're not born out in genetics they were defined very arbitrarily around the enlightenment period and onwards by western philosophers and naturalists in very vague ways it's kind of strange that we still cling to them now we still use them but that goes to show their social power they had social power at the time because they defined the way uh, the world was divided by uh, western powers so european colonialists saw themselves at the at the kind of peak of this racial hierarchy and everyone else slotted underneath. And that is how they defined races then. And that is still how we think about things now. And that in turn then came to dictate the treatment of people during slavery, in colonialism, in genocides, in the Nazi program of racial hygiene was all rooted in these kind of quite arbitrary distinctions that then became socially real. So what I've tried to do in the book is marry that the science with the history and the social science and the politics of it all and just try to explain things in a holistic way. There are quite a few books out there that 
and there have been many over the years looking at the genetics of race and debunking the genetics of race and it's not very difficult to do that because it was never a genetic concept to begin with it's quite you know i don't devote a huge amount of time to that in the book because it's actually quite straightforward it's not it's not a challenge the tricky thing is then is explaining why scientists still cling to these ideas why they've had so much power why psychologically we still commit ourselves to them and that i think is the harder thing the kind of subtle ways in which these ideas play out in our everyday lives can you give some examples i suppose um there's a lot of issues that people broadly speaking on the internet everyone loves facts and figures and people always love to and this is why science is such an interesting place to to try and challenge some of these stereotypes because science is the place where people go to back up their arguments um that's people's fallbacks and especially when it comes to uh, ignorant beliefs and certainly very backwards looking perspectives there's a lot of these that sort of there's a lot of these theories that ultimately get proven one way and you know I understand it as someone who's relatively new to the science world I've come to learn that you know the categorical respect for science isn't all that validated broadly speaking because I now understand that you can answer a question in a very slightly different way to someone else and therefore both be right which I never appreciated before and now I understand that this is why science does get confusing and this is why sadly hate speech and everything can sometimes get backed up with science and with stats so are there any good examples i suppose of uh, of, of of this in your research that you know categorically can be debunked as absolute bollocks for us please <laughs> well it's funny that you say that because i think it's definitely played out in this covid crisis this exhortation by politicians that we are always looking to the science we're looking to the science well science doesn't know everything and it certainly doesn't know everything about a virus that's only just appeared and is still coursing its way through a population one of the racial myths and i think i'm going to look at this covid thing in with regards to racial myths because it's a very proximate example that we have happening right now so you might remember at the beginning of the pandemic um when there were very few when it was largely confined to asia at that point and there were very few cases in africa so it spread a little bit through other parts of the world but there were very few cases in africa and there was this myth that was circulating at that time that black people couldn't catch covid i don't know if you remember at the beginning and this was so pervasive that um there were people saying oh we don't need to wear masks we can do whatever we want it doesn't matter now within a couple of months the narrative had entirely switched because it became very clear in the data that in the uk and the us at least black and asian people were dying at much faster rates of coronavirus and suddenly the kind of standard myth became black people are far more susceptible asian people are far more susceptible and then that became a scientific belief so not just that wait a second here's the racial myth as literally in the space of a month turned from one to another but there are many complex reasons why, why some people it's a socio economic reality but also demographic i mean let's remember that the first city to be hit in the uk was london london is minority white british so you would not expect in london to see high rates of white covid deaths when it's not a city with the high white british population anyway so there are lots of complex reasons there are socioeconomic occupational loads of reasons but scientists very quickly started to treat this as though it's some big mystery you know why why is this happening there have always been racial disparities in health actually in america in the united states black people die of almost everything at greater rates than white americans life expectancy of black americans historically has always been lower than white americans there's no great mystery then that a pandemic hits and you see those same inequalities playing out in outcomes and yet you would hear things like vitamin d vitamin d deficiencies are higher amongst people with darker skin because if you live in a colder country it's harder to get your vitamin d maybe that's what's behind all of this well that doesn't explain all the other racial inequalities in health that we see so these scientific myths i think emerge historically and even now 
through these kind of quite lazy social observations. We see that inequality exists or a disparity exists in society. How can we explain it? And the automatic response of the scientists, sadly, too often is a biological one. There must be a biology at play here. And that is the error that you see playing out in race science from its very inception. You see it again and again. You see it in this belief in the 19th century that black people were biologically stronger than white people. And that's why it was okay to then treat slaves more harshly, to expect them to work harder, which in the 20th century again became reversed in the belief that black people must be weaker than white Americans because they're dying at higher rates. You know, so these myths, scientific myths, which then become scientific questions to be answered, are always fed by social conditions. I mean, like you just said, you know, a lot of these fast myths, I mean, the 5G one is another one that just, you know, sweep through. It's a very interesting time to be living through a pandemic because of the freedom of information being uh, accessible throughout the world. And you know, those are positives and negatives. So I guess, you know, with relation to uh, something like George Floyd's murder, you know, the positive of that is uh, another time in history that would have gone unknown and unwatched and unseen. I think there was a fantastic tweet from Will Smith who said, black people aren't getting beaten up more, it's just being filmed. You know, and it's a, it's a really pertinent point. Um, you know, the positive of something like that is, you know, Black Lives Matters protests around the world um, in reaction and hopefully people actually feeling emotionally which is the most important thing to actually create change and consider neuroplastic change certainly actually feeling like they want to do something about it and that it is also their responsibility to stand up and do something the flip side of that is there's almost also so much access to information that scientific myths like 5g etc can completely confuse the world and somehow take root in highly intelligent people it's not, I think this is the important thing to say that I've been learning. Some of the bizarre things that I read online that seem to catch fire are then perpetuated by people I respect who I think are intelligent. And I think it's really fascinating to make a distinction actually about the role of, of social media um, and the way that science and, uh, and our understanding of truth and how we then go and share it in our own social networks catches hold with absolutely not just people who are uneducated, but sometimes very educated and take it upon themselves to educate others. Do you think that's like an, not just quite an unusual modern phenomenon, especially as someone who's literally been employed professionally to write journalism and science? So it must be absolutely sickening for you to see the kind of platform that people get spreading these things. It is. But I think, um, so for the last year or so, less than a year, I've been running uh, a group which is now nestled within the Royal Institution in London looking at pseudoscience. So we're a group of journalists and academics. We're a very disparate bunch, actually. We have a counter-extremism expert. We have psychologists, neuroscientists, all kinds of people. And um, one of the things I think I've learned in the process of getting to grips with scientific misinformation is that very often it isn't about ignorance. And actually, a lot of the people, for example, anti-vaxxers, are very well-educated, middle-class, well-educated kind of mums, you know. And um, what is driving their belief in certain conspiracy theories is not, is not that they don't have access to information. They have access to all of it. In fact, they may have read far more than I have about vaccination, but they have chosen to... Uh, believe in a certain worldview. And once you've made that choice, you can go online and have it reinforced endlessly. You kind of slip down this rabbit hole in which millions of people agree with you. This is why we've seen this kind of uptick in flat earthers and climate change deniers and people who believe things that are so patently untrue, but there is so many of them and they present such interesting cases to each other that it just reinforces them. And when you are inside that kind of conspiracy theory rabbit hole, everything else starts to look like a conspiracy theory. So, for example, for flat earthers, the belief that the world is round then becomes a big, grand 
kind of conspiracy on the part of world governments to shield us from this particular piece of information for whatever reason. And within these worlds, then, you get these closed communities that are remarkably complex. They're really, really they have their own kind of heroes. They have their own figures. They have, they have everything within that little world. And the rest of us might not know anything about it, but they live inside that alternative universe. It's really fascinating. And I think it's important also to understand the psychology behind these things because you cannot beat that alternative universe with the accusation that these people are stupid. You can't call them stupid because then that just entrenches them further. And in fact, they're not stupid. All they've done is create an alternative universe for themselves and accessing that and then subverting it, which is something that we've been trying to do in our group, is really difficult. It's really, really tough. Listening to you has made me think a lot about, so one of the potential pitfalls of the Black Lives Matter movement at the moment is a lot of people, you know, educated, less educated, but of all colours standing up and saying Black Lives Matter and standing on what you know, we certainly believe to be the right side of history fighting for equality. From recent experience, and you know, you said earlier in our, our, our interview, yay to Obama and then suddenly Trump. In all history cycles, my fear of what's going on right now is we fall back into, you know, I'm, for my sins, a liberal, I learned painful lessons after Brexit. And my fear, I suppose, is, is history repeating itself again, where you stand so loudly and so proudly and so strongly in support of black people that suddenly um, you start to quieten out the voices that are real, that do exist, that are the white supremacists, etc. And they suddenly make it look like you're winning the argument until an election comes around and they all go out and vote again. That's basically what we saw happen at Brexit. As you know, that's exactly what happened after the Obama administration. And that's no good for anybody. And so I think the thing that I've learned, particularly with Twitter, which is, you know, a really uncomfortable, it's great if it's you're in your echo chamber, but it's an uncomfortable place if you decide to venture out of it is how important it is to know that these people exist and to understand that they are intelligent, that their points of view matter, and that to try and engage them in thoughtful debate as unbelievably difficult as that might feel, especially emotionally, um, sadly plays out to be the truth time and time again. And I guess that's my concern with the emotional uprising we're having right now, is that we forget what happened after Obama, that we forget literally what happened with Brexit. No, just, I mean, we both know because we're British, we remember the recent history of living through it. I'm not asking you what you voted, but certainly if you're a reliever, if you're a reliever, you could not possibly believe that it was Remain. I mean, it just did not seem possible. But of course, that's because social media allows you to live inside a bubble that isn't representative. And when you're so vocal on one side, you can't necessarily listen to the other. So those are my thoughts. You're far more intelligent and wise of this earth than I so I'd love to hear what your thoughts are I don't know about that maybe older but not wiser not wiser that would have been a really classy move from me yeah Angela you're much older than me what do you think that's what I hear when I hear wiser (laughs) shit Uh, that's okay that's all right (laughs) yeah I understand I completely agree with everything that you've just said and one of the reasons I left Twitter a few months ago. I'm back on it now very temporarily, but I'm going to leave again. But I left it in part, well, for lots of reasons. I was getting a lot of racist trolling and also I had a new book to work on. So I needed the need to get away from the distraction. But also because in this last election, if you were on Twitter, just disregarding all filter bubbles for a moment, if you're on Twitter at all, whatever filter bubble you were in, you would have been convinced that Labour were going to win that election or at least do really well because it just felt overwhelmingly based on trending topics and you know everything that was being shared that that was the direction we were going in in fact it turned out of course to be the worst one of the worst defeats labor has ever had and i think i realized at that point that we are really kidding ourselves as journalists if we think that twitter is in any way reflective of public opinion it really is just a subsegment of a particular group of people some nutcases in some corners, you know, it's a 
it's not in any way how people think out there at all. And so to take our cue from social media, I think is a big mistake, not least because it also gives, as you say, such prominence to outside voices, to ex kind of marginal voices, including, I mean, those on the far right who I've direct experience of, but also those who are pushing for change at the margins of society, who are more liberal and progressive and want to change things. It can also feel as though they are more powerful than they actually are. Most people I find, having been off Twitter for a few months and just reading normal kind of mainstream media for a little while, most people are actually quite reasonable, nuanced people who most of the time are not completely sure about anything. I certainly am one of those people. I kind of need to be persuaded of my political position sometimes. I don't know everything all the time. And what social media, I think, forces you to do is take a position immediately without having all the facts, to condemn immediately without having all the facts. And that, I think, is unfair because people are complex. We have good and bad within us. I am sure I've done terrible things in my life. I've said politically incorrect things in my life. And I would hate to be judged on the basis of those. And I wouldn't want other people either to be judged on the basis of those. What I want is some space to be able to have meaningful conversations. And I don't think that's possible actually on Twitter because I think the people on the far right, the racists who are trying to engage more prominent people like scientists in debate are not looking to have their minds changed, they're looking to gain prominence for themselves. And this is a dynamic that actually um, charities such as Hope Not Hate have pointed out. Do not argue with racists on Twitter because this is what they want. These people who have one or two followers, suddenly someone with half a million followers is is retweeting them, telling telling the world how stupid they are. Well, now you've just only amplify that person that's all you've done they would have quite happily been invisible otherwise the world didn't need to know about the existence of that person or that bot or whatever it was that's why i think we need to be careful and we also need to take our time and not rush to judgment constantly uh, this is a fear i have for what we're seeing right now who would have guessed that by february or march the word Brexit would not be in the newspapers anymore. Nobody would have guessed that. I would have thought we'd be talking about Brexit for years. The news cycle just moves so quickly. We're just jumping on the next thing. We're demanding novelty constantly. And this is the worry I have about George Floyd's murder is that it is in the news now. It's causing us to feel things now. Will we still be feeling those things in a month or in two months, will we still be having the same kind of action in a month or two months when the next new things come comes along? In fact, George Floyd's murder in the British press has already been superseded by the news about Madeleine McCann's possible murderer, you know, that, that, that they might have found the person responsible for her disappearance. I saw that. I mean, to counter your previous point, can you imagine 16 years ago to think that we're still talking about Madeleine McCann's slow news cycle? In some ways, yeah. I mean, I, I think the news stories that happened 20 years ago are more likely to survive the news stories that happen now. That's the weird world that we're in. That's very true. It's just crazy. So what's the best bit of advice you could give to black people and people of color right now who might be, you know, leaders, they might be employees uh, rising up through their companies, you know, to think about how to influence change? Well, I think the change doesn't need to come from the black employees and the black leaders, because I know from personal experience that ethnic minority people already do as much as we can to move forward in our careers and get paid fairly. The problem comes that institutions don't give people that same level of equality, that same consideration. We know there have been many decades of research looking at how if you have a certain name on your CV, you're less likely to get a, an interview. We know that there is an ethnic pay gap. We know that in thousands of little ways, if you are non-white, you're disadvantaged in job and career prospects and so companies need to do better on this front i'm not impressed by expressions of solidarity that aren't backed up with actual measures of change which aren't kind of 
followed through with real policies that make a difference to people's lives that put different kinds of people in leadership positions in organizations and also listens to them it's very easy to have a token person of color or woman on your board but you also have to take the uncomfortable step of hearing what they have to say and acknowledging it and acting on it it's interesting like just hearing you when you said you know i have to ask you and i heard you say you know a token person of color on your board or whatever and i suppose like the difficult the difficulty is in in perception and reality because in um you know in a real world uh you know it's, it's very easy to say that that person is a, a token employee when or member of the board when actually that might just be a moment in time, you know, the first the first signal of change of that board becoming more representative as well. And I think this might be something that, you know, is a is is cause for concern, right? Which is no one well, actually you know, one can say no one because that is a very absolute but you know, people certainly don't want to be uh, virtue signaling, right? What you say and what you do and how you think and how you act all need to be the same thing. You need to be uh, we all need to be on a crusade together to make these things better. But I suppose it's interesting just seeing in in, in the business media recently, you know, com- especially in the last week, you know, companies being called out for that when actually internally, and I don't know these people, so I'm not defending them, but inter- internally they might well be on that crusade, right? They might be like old, very old companies with usually old, white, male, pale, stale boards um, that over the last few years have actually been driving this initiative and arguably you could say not fast enough. We also live in a world where positive discrimination is illegal. So I think it's more about are you putting in the measures in place to make sure that if you've got a list of candidates who are categorically 100% reviewing and seeing um, a fair and representative amount of people who are black and people of colour to make sure that the selection process considers them. And I think, you know, this is the thing. It's, uh, it's, It's very tricky. It's tricky to get right in society. It is tricky. And I also think um, we have to think more cleverly about it. So I personally do not have a problem with white men per se. And I get nervous when we kind of expect the world to change if only, for example, women were in charge or if only ethnic minorities were in charge. Well, actually, a lot of women voted for Trump in case we've forgotten. Republican women have always been very supportive of male leaders who have done very little for women's rights and women leaders who have done very little for women's rights. So I think we have to be careful about playing that game. What we have to do is ask, what are we doing culturally to change people's minds? So one of the best bosses I ever had um, was um, when I was at ITV News, the managing editor there, Robin Elias, who I think is still there, he threw a white man who through no kind of showiness, nothing, and at a time when it wasn't fashionable, would hire loads of ethnic minority staff. So the ITV newsroom was one of the most diverse places I ever worked, more diverse than Channel 4 News, more diverse than the BBC. And because he just did it as a matter of course, he didn't even think about it. He really just recognized the need for diversity and talent wherever it lay. This is the channel, you know, that had Trevor McDonald, Nina Hussain, some of the first black and Asian anchors on TV news. And that kind of diversity was reflected also in production, which you do not see certainly in other news organizations. So not only on screen, but also behind the scenes. And he hired me and he has always been so supportive of everyone like like just such a great boss and that kind of thinking that kind of mindset is what we need at every level is this kind of just an acceptance that it's not just one kind of person that can do this job I think that's the big problem that we have is that people think only people like them can do this job people with the same who look like them or have the same background as them can do this can do this job when you when you recognize that's not true then I think things start to change. So I don't think it's just an issue of maleness or whiteness. I think it's about engaging more deeply than that. That's why I think although representation matters, it's not enough. It's about cultural change within an organisation, which takes a lot longer. Mm. Well, I think that's exactly it. I don't know where I read it the other day. It was a great quote, which is generational change takes generations. Mm -hmm. It does, but 
you know, there are many young people now. I mean, look at incels, you know, these involuntary celibates, man, the men's rights movement. There are many young men who adhere to that, many fans of Jordan Peterson. I mean, the number of young men I've met who are fans of Jordan Peterson. So I don't think it's just a generational thing because Robin, for instance, that boss, he is, uh, if he's not already retired, he's very near retirement at the moment. So he belongs to a different generation entirely. My dad, who is one of the most egalitarian men I know, was born in 1945. And he's much more forward thinking and progressive than many young men I know. Um, so I don't, you know, like I was saying before, I don't think society necessarily inevitably moves forward in ways that we imagine. And this is something I'm actually exploring in the book I'm writing at the moment, which is why it's like at the top of my head, is that we think it is, that's an illusion. In some ways, things for some people get worse. In some ways, for some people, things get better. But always, change has been accompanied by struggle and sometimes quite violent struggle. You know, civil rights didn't happen automatically. Neither did women's suffrage. It was very difficult. And there was a lot of resistance at the time. It's only in hindsight that we look back and people like Martin Luther King is considered a hero or Malcolm X is considered a hero. At the time, they were considered terrorists. You know, many they were, you know, mocked in the press and treated very differently. And we, there are people now who will be treated like that who in hindsight, I hope, we will recognise um, as heroes, but change is not easy. A perfect way to end, but I do want to ask before you go, what's the best piece of advice you could give to our listeners listening in today with context not just to a pandemic, but you know, a moment of, of history and hopefully change? When you're thinking about bias and prejudice, before you start pointing the finger at others and we know that there are plenty of fingers that could be pointed, but just start with yourself. Try and recognize the bias within yourself. This is something that I have certainly tried to do. Writing inferior and superior took me on a journey, not just to recognize bias in science, but also in, my, in myself to see the prejudices I and stereotypes I had internalized and the ways in which I might have been treating other people differently. And that is a constant journey you have to take. Always challenge yourself to see how you can do better. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Angela. It's been great to chat to you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta, producer Rich Martell, editor Harry Morton of Lower Street Media, and marketing by Hannah Russell of Mags Creative, and stunning visual design by our talented designer Christina Naru of SmartUpVisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming live events on our website, SecretLeaders.com. If you've not yet, please hit subscribe, leave us a review, tell a friend, take a screenshot of this episode and add it to an Insta story. I mean, you know what to do. And tag us at Secret Leaders or at Dan Murray Serta, and we will add you to our story in appreciation back. Rich and I put together Secret Leaders for free because we love our day jobs as entrepreneurs, but every time someone takes the time to share it, it means a lot to us. So don't forget, it's the little things like that that keep us coming back every week and every year into the studio. See you next week.